0: This morning we want to continue looking into our prayer life. And I feel like I'm blowing you out. Is that about right? Yeah, I thought so. There we go. We looked last week at the basis of our prayer life that needs to be reflected in our praying. What is the basis of our prayer life? It's a relationship with God. This is the foundation of our praying. And it's not only appropriate, but I would consider it necessary um, to communicate that in our praying. For a couple of reasons. Number one, to glorify God. To communicate to Him our understanding, our thanksgiving, our rejoicing, in this relationship that we have. That I understand its source, I understand its importance, and I am dependent upon it. And so we, we give glory to God by rehearsing with Him and to Him our understanding of the foundation of our praying, and that is a right relationship with Him. That He is our Father. We have this intimacy, remember, But yet we also have this reverence that is there. We describe the hallowedness of His name. Then we also have our submission to Him. And so not only does it aid us in glorifying Him, for this is the work that He has done, none of us managed to get into a relationship with God on our own. None of us can or ever could, but rather He did all the work for us. And so when we communicate our Father in heaven, this intimacy isn't intimacy that I generated. It isn't intimacy that I really even sought after. It is an intimacy that God desired and God designed. He designed it way back when He created man and created us in His image. He designed us for intimate relationships. Now, I know some of you think you have an intimate relationship with your animals, your pets, um, but we need to understand that there is a significant, and that's almost an insignificant word for what I'm trying to communicate, there is an enormous difference between what you call intimacy with your pets and with an animal. I'm always kind of chuckle at young couples that say we're going to get a, a dog so that we know if we could take care of a baby. Um, taking care of a dog is nothing like taking care of a baby, not only because of the work is different, but because the intimacy is different. I would hope that you have more interest in caring for a product of your body, your child, than a puppy dog. That once is paper trained is pretty easy. You just throw some food and water out there every now and then. Take it for a walk. You see levels of intimacy God designed us for that none of the rest of creation has. Well, this intimacy was lost through sin, of course, and yet it can be regained. And God designed that as well. He not only designed us for intimacy, but He He designed a way to reestablish that intimacy. And so when we come to God and say, Our Father, we're rehearsing an understanding of who we are, what we are, who He is, and what He is, and what He desires with us. We also remind ourselves of our citizenship. We didn't talk about this a lot last week at all, and we're going cuz it really ties into this week more. That if he is our father and that is our relationship and he is in heaven, that is our home. If he is our father and that is a primary relationship, then where he is is our home. We're going to speak to this a little bit. We then also talked about the necessity of submission. We're going to talk expansively about that as well. We come to verse 3 now, and we see the balance of what we call the Lord's Prayer. The balance is, give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, and we finally get to verse 3 and we go, all right, now we're getting into some good stuff. Give me, give me, give me. Well, we better get our hearts right before we get into verse 3, so let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that as we look into it that we might uh, re-examine not only the activity of praying that we are engaged in or not engaged in, but the manner and the heart in our praying, the motives in our praying. Lord, give us the courage and the humility to be honest in the examination of our walk with you today. Lord, convict. I can't do that. Your spirit will do that. It's promised to do that, and we invoke him today to do that through his word. We might leave here recommitted in our life. through real praying, as you have instructed us, how? Lord, guard this time from error, from opinion, the ideas of men, that they might, all that is communicated might be according to your truth. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. We come to verse 3, give us day by day our daily bread, and we go, oh, we love that first two words of that verse, give us. It seems that if there's anything that characterizes praying in our modern age, it is these two words, give us. We find it here tucked in, almost right in the center of this prayer, so we're sure it must be the center of all of our praying. Give us. And yet we fail to examine the real brevity that it's given and what is being asked to be given. We're going to spend just a little bit of time here because I really want to focus in on the last part and jump into um, an understanding of where the disciples are in this by Christ's Further uh, communication and in, in some uh, analogies that he uses later on, give us day by day our daily bread, and this is far beyond your requests. For the fact is, is that you do not live day by day. This is a rarity because most of us have stored up for ourselves uh, great abundance. Not maybe of bread. We might think, well, I have to go to the store later today. In fact, I am not prepared for the potluck or carry-in dinner or we're gonna call it uh, something else, the ante or something early uh later on. Some of you didn't know what a carry in dinner was. In fact, I got three phone calls this week. What's a carry-in dinner? Do I just feed myself? It's a potluck, depending upon where you're from in the country. Okay, where I'm con it's a carry-in dinner. But we're just going to call it ante dinner from now on. You just throw it in the ante, okay? And, and yep. if you don't throw anything in the ante, too bad. No, I'm if you don't have any food, if you're not prepared, you come anyway. There's plenty just in my house. There's plenty. But we think, well, you know, I need some food for tomorrow. I'm going to have to go to the grocery store this week. That is not the same as what is being communicated here. The idea here is. Perhaps one evidence of it, or one illustration of it, I should say, is of that widow who comes and gives all that she has and has nothing for tomorrow. She is taking care of today's needs. She has given the balance of what is in her purse. And she is totally dependent upon God for tomorrow's necessities. And this is so far removed from our concept of living we really can't even conceive of what Christ just told us to pray for. Now, is there wisdom in storage? Certainly. I and mean, that's exemplified for us in Joseph and, and other times there. But the Scriptures talk about our time, our era, our season. And it describes a season as uh, short it describes the season as impending. There, there's impendingness to it. We are anticipating the Lord's coming. We're anticipating things happening. And so any storing that we're doing, we're understanding that, that our, our sight isn't towards longevity, but towards brevity. That is, our sights are always that we wanted this to be a, a shortness to... Um, this age, that there should be uh, a, a seasonality, rather than thinking of, of generational, but rather that this is a, a short, not just in terms of the lifespan of man, but in terms of the church age, that there is something uh, drawing upon us, and it is not the building up of this great inheritance to pass on to our ungrateful, lazy children. Sorry, I had to throw that in there, kids. And by the way, I'm one of those because my parents haven't died yet and left me that great inheritance they're going to give me, which composes of one coffee table. So I just can't wait. Yes, I can, because it would require their death for me to get that, and I'm not interested necessarily in that. But we have this idea that, and that's the American dream, that I'm going to build up this great wealth, and that and I understand that I can't take it with me, but I want to be able to pass it on so that my children can have a better life than I, and they can take that wealth, and the idea is that they will take it and build it to even greater heights, and on and on and on it goes. And this is foreign to the New Testament. Rather, the New Testament calls upon us to expend our resources for something of greater importance than wealth building, and that is of home building, and I'm not referring to your house that you live in, dwell in right now, but rather your heavenly home. Remember, your Father in heaven. So this is your most intimate relationship, and this is your home. And very few of us have invested much in that place. And so we are to expend our resources here for the building up of spiritual Wealth of value that is eternal. It is much like what you do throughout the week of expending your physical energies to receive monetary wealth. We are then to expend all our resources to build up a future eternal wealth. And so the communication of give us this day and day by day our daily bread... It talks about my willingness to expend myself for God and being dependent upon Him for caring for my needs. We talked about dependence a bit last week. when We talked about the idea that I'm going to submit myself to God and have His will being done in my life. Lord, may Your will be done here as it is in heaven. And the here isn't just on earth in terms of the the surface of the earth or the events of the earth. Certainly that's entailed there, but it's on earth in the lives of your people in this life. May your will be there. We submit ourselves to God's will there. We are called to do so. But it goes a step further, this dependence upon God, and that is for our daily sustenance. We pray little like this because we have a little need of this, frankly. We believe it is incumbent upon us to spend our resources on ourselves and those we love. I did a little bit of that this week. I got lots of bravos and pats on the back via Facebook. I don't know how they do that, but I get this and and I even got a thank you. Oh, that was nice from my daughter. So I expended some wealth on her entertainment. And the world says, wow, what a dad. What a dad. We applaud you. What should be applauded is when we expend that wealth on eternal things. When I take what maybe You might think, well, that belongs to your kids. That's their inheritance. And I say, no, they don't need an inheritance. I haven't got, I haven't got an inheritance. I'm not concerned about an inheritance. I'm not waiting for an inheritance. Why should my children be? No, I'm going to expend my resources in my life for the kingdom of God. And that is great parenting. And that should be applauded. What did you leave your kids? A legacy of giving should be every Christian's goal. A legacy of expending myself for the kingdom of heaven. That is the greatest inheritance you can give your children. And so, while we are trying to build up this wealth, while we're trying to become financially independent, and I always ask you, independent of who? You want to be financially independent. What is it you want to be independent of? The answer to that is God. Let that sink in there a little bit. The answer to saying, I'm financially independent is I don't need God. And there are examples of these in Scripture. And we, we know the story. We know the story about the rich man who built barns and tore them down and had to build bigger barns. And he says, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. God says, you're going to have to give an accounting to me tonight. You're gone. And for most of us, for most American Christians, Western Christianity, this is our mindset. And so when we come to this instruction, give us day by day our daily bread, it is a willingness to be dependent upon God. I will be dependent upon you. I will expend myself for your kingdom, for my home. And I'll use all the resources I have available here to send them there. To my heavenly home. And so I only need today's needs cared for. Oh, let us do so. We are trying to lead you in this as a church. We last... The other night we took a vote, was that last Sunday night? Boy, it seems like it was like three weeks ago. This has been a long week. In fact, I forgot to wear a suit this week. Labor Day was last, this week. And so I always wear a suit from Labor Day to Memorial Day. And I forgot today. But this has been a long week. So last week we made a, we, we, we had a church vote that we would put off our future. You understand that? We said $20,000 that we could easily invest in this property for our needs. We are going to put it off because we don't need it today. We can't spend it. We can't spend it today on ourselves. Isn't that wonderful? God is so good. You know, because if we could have spent it on ourselves, we would have. Right? But God won't let us. So now we're going to take it today and we're going to try to spend it somewhere where we can spend it today and it has very little to do with us but it has a whole lot to do with the kingdom of heaven. I'll be thrilled if we have to spend another year here in this school building. Did I say that? If it means that a bunch of Haitians are going to go and be my brethren in heaven because they can identify a place of worship in Lillevoix. You see, once we prayed this kind of a prayer, you know, Give me what I need today, Lord. I'm not going to fret about tomorrow and next week or my kids after I'm dead. Um, I'm not going to buy into this world system. Here's the, here's the philosophy that I want to buy into. Give me today and every day, day after day, what I need for this day and let me be content with this. Oh, Suddenly the give us isn't so exciting, is it? This isn't a gimme, gimme, gimme phrase. This is a, a description of what we should be asking for, and that is the bare minimum for ourselves. The Bible says with food and raiment, be content. Christ just says, pray for your daily food and be satisfied. Be satisfied. Can we be satisfied? Can we be content with just this day knowing that there are crock pots plugged in all around this building and over at the other building and that we've got today's food figured out? Can't you be content with that? you all clothed. I'm happy for you. And clean clothes, from I could tell. Can we be content today? Can we rejoice and say, God has given us this day our daily bread and... And tomorrow when I'll wake up and pray for that day. And that that'll be the, the measure of my contentment. Is that my needs are met today. Christians would be a lot happier if this was our measure of contentment. If we prayed this kind of praying, Lord, take care of me today. My daily needs today. And so very briefly, Christ touches on our physical needs. They are real. They are worth sending before his throne of grace. They speak of our dependence, and they speak about our contentment. We come to verse 4 now, and we come into what I believe is perhaps the power, your part of the power praying. We talked about God's part, the, the, that He has. we have an intimate relationship, we have a, a reverent relationship, and we have a subordinate relationship. We have a submissive relationship to him. And so we talked about that. We come now and we say, okay, what am I really asking for? Now we're going to get into the substance of things to ask for. All right, we have a, a very quick, yes, we have physical needs. Lord, meet those physical needs and, and we'll praise you. Boom. Now we're going to come to verse 4 and we have extensive description comparative compared to verse 3 of what we should be asking for much more often in praying in our praying. Here we go. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. I come before God intimate Reverent, submitted, content, but I need to come before God repentant. Most powerful praying I find in the Old Testament is among the, some of the prophets. And they repent. Oh, they confess sin. They confess sin for all of their society. They confess sin for all their family. They confess their own sin. They are confessors. And not just giving lip service to such things and just saying it, but truly in their heart, genuine sorrow for the sin, not only that is their own, but the sin that is their family and the sin that is their nation's. Oh, that we would be genuinely sorry, not only for our own sin, but the sin of our family, the sin of our church, and the sin of the church. Yes, it's okay for us to pray confessionally for the corporate sin of the church of Jesus Christ. And certainly there is some, particularly in the Western church. But it's, but we don't have the corner on the market on sin, i got to tell you that. They, they have sin in India, too, and in Haiti, and all over. Look at them. They weep before God and lay it all out. Oh, we are horrible sinners. We have done, we have desecrated your law. We, we have, we have gone as a harlot after other gods. We have bought into the philosophy of the peoples around us. We have abandoned you. You have done so much for us. And then it gets personal. I've done it. Woe is me, I am undone. We wonder where the power of praying is. James rightly tells us. James tells us that the prayers of the righteous man avail much. Where does righteousness come from? It's not the self-righteous man that James is talking about, but the made righteous man. How am I made righteous? John tells us if we confess our sins, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How are we made righteous? By coming to God and saying, Oh, God, forgive me of my sins. Forgive us of our sins. That we might be made righteous. And that now in this righteous state, everything that we pray for, we can we can understand to be in in, in an agreement with you, for, for if we are righteous as He is righteous, if we are holy as He is holy, then we have a knowledge that He hears us. And in John we are told that in those conditions, that if we are abiding in Him, His Word is abiding in us, and, and, and that we're bringing forth this kind of fruit of righteousness, that anything we ask, He'll give it. You're going, ooh, this. now I know how you're thinking. Oh, this looks like a good scheme. If I could just figure out how to do this, but you can't do this in scheme. I was doing a little story in my Sunday school class this morning, and a thought struck me. I shared it with my class. I don't know if they'll remember it or not later, but I shared it with them. It was a powerful truth I'm going to share with you now. Do you know that the most successful Day at work that Peter ever had was his last day. Think about that. As a fisherman, he loaded his boats till they were sinking. And God says, walk away from it and follow me. You see, we would say, you're a successful fisherman. Well, you should, you should branch out. And God says, walk away. Walk away. You see, if we have righteousness in our life, that will be our, response, our attitude. We will look at this world and say, it has no appeal. No matter how successful I might be in this world, from the world's view, it has no appeal. For the righteousness of Christ has filled me and I want to seek after my home and I want to glorify my Father. I want Him to say, well done. I don't care if all my Facebook friends say, well done. I want God to tell me well done. I don't care if the boss wants to give me a raise. I'm interested in my Father and glorifying and, and, and working for His kingdom. Where does this come from? This kind of righteousness, this kind of, of, of new thinking comes from a confessional life that is genuinely sorry for sin, lays it all out there before God with absolute humility and says, Oh, forgive me. It is wrong. We wonder why our praying is so weak and powerless. It's because we are harboring sin even as we're trying to feign this this uh intimacy with God. When that occurs, when I'm praying, knowing that there's sin in my life, I refuse to repent of and refuse to confess, it is as if that prayer is simply lying to God. You're all parents, most, a lot of you. What do you feel? Child comes up to you. They're hiding something from you. But they come up to you all nice and sweet. Oh, let me take off your shoes. Let me. Can I get you a drink, Dad? Because I want something from you. All the while they're hiding the disobedience they did earlier that day or the day before or they've been doing consistently. This is a lie. And yet our praying is much the same. That if this aspect is vacant, is feigned, is, is, is uh, pretended in our praying, then the rest of our praying is a lie. And hence James says that if you're not praying this kind of righteousness, that your prayers are uneffectual. They don't work. What is the evidence, the extent of our repentance? How sorry am I? Well, Christ is going to, in the midst of this prayer, say, I want you to please forgive us in like manner <laughs> to how I forgive others. Whoa. I want you to forgive me, Lord, the same way I forgive others. <laughs> What have you just prayed? Scary. You have just said, God, look into my heart and measure your forgiveness by my sincerity. The evidence of my sincerity is not the words I speak, but how I show them to the world. Oh Lord, please forgive me, and yet I'll go over here and say, Oh, I'm not ever going to forgive you that. Guess what? He'll forgive you, for you also, everyone is indebted to you. In the same manner, in the same extent that we are prepared to forgive others, Lord, forgive us. Why does this matter to God? Why is His forgiveness now qualified by our forgiveness? Because it is the evidence of our righteousness. It is the evidence of our godly sorrow leading to true repentance. You cannot sit here before God and say, Oh, I'm so sorry for my sin, while you are holding something over someone else, their sin. For godly sorrow would demand that you forgive. True righteousness is laid there. It is demonstrated there. God says you want an evidence. You want a proof in your life. Then you need to forgive others who are indebted to you. And that debt can be one of financial debt. That's certainly possible and and reasonable in the context of that word and the phrase, um but it's any kind of indebtedness. It can be social indebtedness, it could be financial, it could be uh uh moral, it, it can be any kind of indebtedness that I come to you and I am going to be a forgiving person, have an attitude of forgiveness, and I'm going to God seeking his forgiveness based upon that demonstration. Lord, I'm gonna walk away from here and I'm gonna forgive everyone else. Please forgive me as they do, as I forgive them. Now let me share with something about forgiveness. Because our world is, has twisted this a little bit that uh, well God forgives everybody everything, not true. And it's written right here, isn't it? God forgive us in accordance with our forgiveness of others. In other words, God's forgiveness is a measured thing. It's not carte blanche. It's not for everyone. It has requirements. What do you need to do to be forgiven by God? You need to confess. You need to repent. You need to to um, bring them before Him, and you need to show fruits of repentance. These are all described in God's Word. In the idea that somehow, well, it's just God is obliged to forgive everybody, everything. If that were true, we'd all be in heaven, and and we could all live however we like. The fact is, is that forgiveness is never unconditional. Let me say that again. Because it flies in the face of what we hear in the psycho world. Um, forgiveness is never unconditional. Not in the Bible. It is never unconditional. And when people say, um, you have to forgive these people that have done injury to you unconditionally, you have to forgive them. They are wrong. That is not the basis of forgiveness. Forgiveness is always conditioned upon Confession, repentance, sorrow, that evidence. Now, having said that, love should never be conditional. Why does that matter? Why would you throw that in there? Because love is always forgiving. What's the difference? Because love seeks to forgive. It calls person and says, you have sinned against me. And it calls you to confront that person and to provide a means for them to say, oh, I, you're right. I'm so sorry and please forgive me. You see, this is a forgiving spirit that tries to bring others to the point of forgiveness. This is what God has done for us. The fact is that no man would ever come to God of his own accord and say, I'm sorry. And so God does a wonderful thing. He sends His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, to convict the world, every single person, of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come. You're a sinner, God is righteous, and He's going to judge you for your sin because He is righteous and you're a sinner. Why does God do that? Because He wants to forgive the world. He is designed to forgive the world. Through the work of the Spirit, through the work of Christ, He is designed to forgive the world. But He doesn't forgive the world. He forgives those who will meet the requirements, the conditions of forgiveness, which is confession, repentance, godly sorrow. And so we come to this world and we come to one another within our relationships and we have a spirit of forgiveness. We have a spirit that says, I so desperately want you to be sorry for what you've done. But I can't make you sorry. And so I can invite you, I can point at you, I can remind you of what you've done, and I can say that was wrong, and it was wrong, and it hurt, and it is continuing to hurt, and it's still wrong today, and you've never apologized for it, you've never been sorry, you've never turned from it. You see, forgiveness is conditional. Love is unconditional. Love creates a forgiving spirit. So we are called to confront people and to try. And church discipline is all about not condemnation. Church discipline is all about we want to forgive you. Please let us. Please do what you need to do for us to forgive you. This is what God speaks from on high. Please do this so I can forgive you. I have paid the price. I have sent my spirit to remind you of your sin. I am prepared to forgive you. I don't want anyone to be under condemnation. This is love. But it does not necessitate, boy, I put extra in there. It does not necessitate the actual forgiving act. Love says, I am ready to forgive. I provided for forgiveness. I am my heart. I am, I am, I am focused on forgiveness. But the, the act of forgiveness is conditioned upon you. I'm tired of hearing people, even on Christian radio stations, saying, you need to just forgive that person. No, they are not sorry. God doesn't forgive them. Why should you? But neither do we want to be vengeful upon them. Neither are we trying to get back at them. But rather, we are trying to take every course that we can to bring them to repentance, just as God is doing in us. Did in us. And so this idea of forgive as we have forgiven others is, is a, a, again, a way of demonstrating to us what forgiveness entails. It entails meeting a condition. You must meet the condition to be forgiven. God is not going to just forgive you because He loves you so much. And folks, as much as we might love each other in this church, doesn't automatically grant you forgiveness. If you're not sorry, you won't confess it, you're not forgiven. We'll keep reminding you of your sin, we'll point it out, we'll call you to repentance, we'll beg you, we'll pray for you, but we'll not forgive you until you are sorrowful, repentant, confessing, and showing evidence, fruits of repentance. Does that mean we're unloving? No. No. It means we care about righteousness, about godliness, about holiness. And folks, in your family, I require it of my, you don't get forgiveness in my family from me, my children, not my wife. If there's no sorrow, there's no forgiveness. If there's no confession, there's no forgiveness. I say, oh, well, time will heal old wounds. No, they won't. It won't. It will not heal it. Confession. Heals wounds. Forgiveness that comes from it, from a sorrowful confession, a sorrowful repentance, is what heals. It is the salve of the Spirit. And so we come to God confessing sin, not just to list them off and say, okay, Father in heaven, I have sinned. Here are my sins of this day. Please forgive me. Thank you. I plan to do them tomorrow again, but I got this checked off my praying list. Guess what? You aren't forgiven! This is what this entails. Forgive me of my sins, and I will demonstrate just how sorry I am. By evidencing that in my relationships around me, showing you the fruits of my repentance, my, the, the, the extent of the, and the death of my sorrow, that I understand that I'm the worst of sinners, and so I can easily forgive these other people who have indebted themselves to me. And then it goes on. You see, forgiveness deals with the past. First half of verse 4 deals with our past. Oh, Lord, take care of that. I was wrong. It was sin. It needs to be out of my life. It's it's brought misery to me and to those around me, to those I say I love, I've hurt. You see, the first half of verse 4 deals with the past. The last half deals with the future in the same category of your righteousness. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lord, I recognize as long as I am still in this flesh, I am at war. I am engaged in a war. Battle after battle after battle will cross my path more often than daily, sometimes hourly. Lord, I am dependent upon You not only to forgive my past, but I am dependent upon You to secure my future. That I might walk in righteousness. I don't want to just be righteous this moment. I want to walk worthy of my position in Your family. I want to walk as a child of heaven instead of a child of this earth. This is what I am praying, Lord. Lord, And I need your help. For the forces around me are beyond me. And the force within me is beyond me. Where does our sin come from? Who are the enemies of righteousness? The enemies of righteousness certainly are our society. The enemies of righteousness are certainly your, your, the media. They are enemies of righteousness. Um, what you put in front of your children's eyes and in front of your eyes, on the computer, on your television, on, are enemies of righteousness. We know that. And, and by the way, if I were a pastor in Florida, 50 people on a Pentecostal, I'd be burning TVs instead of Korans. Um, the Quran is not the enemy of righteousness. I hate to tell you that. It's an enemy of truth, but it's not the enemy of righteousness. If you don't believe me, you go to some of those countries and they don't drink alcohol, they don't have homosexuals, they don't, on and on and on. Interesting, huh? How do I get onto that? What are the enemies of righteousness in your life? Yeah, they're out there. They're around you. They're your peers. Um, but I got to tell you, there is an enemy of righteousness in your life that is right with you today. You brought him with you. It's you. Your own will. Your own flesh. We talk about the world, the devil, and the flesh as the sources of temptation. And we talk a lot about the other two, um, but really the other two can be managed if we could just deal with that third one of ourselves. Number one enemy of righteousness in your life is you. You are the number one enemy of righteousness in your life. You know why? Because you control the on-off switch. Because you control... Your eyes, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because you determine what you hear. You decide what you speak. And out of the mouth, oh, out of the mouth, fires of sin and iniquity are lit. You see, the number one enemy of righteousness isn't out there, it's in here. And Paul understands this, and he describes this battle in the book of Romans. Oh, and his conclusions, who can deliver me from this body of death? And by the way, he answers this question. To the praise of God is Jesus Christ. And this kind of praying recognizes what is it that can deliver me from this sinful thing called Kirk? Jesus Christ. And so I come to God and I pray and I go, Lord, I'm so weak, pathetic. And now you've cleansed me and I'm no longer sin stained, but I'm sin prone. Thank you, Lord, for delivering me from my past. Now, Lord, (laughs) I please secure this. I'm looking at this and I'm going, there's no way. How can I get through this week without sin? My truck is in the shop. How am I going to do that? How am I going to be thankful about paying for another clutch? I don't know. Lord, help me. I want to be thankful. Is this your praying? Lord, help me. I want to walk with you. I want to walk worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. I want to walk in the Spirit. Secure my future, Lord. I need to put it in your hands every day, every moment. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me. Well, I was going to go a lot farther, but I'm not going to. It'll give me a great opportunity next week to review as we go through verses 5 through 13. Powerful praying, folks, doesn't start by a list of wants. It starts with an add to the heart that says, Lord, you are my God. You are my Father. We have an intimate relationship, and if you don't have that, your prayers are worthless exercises of religiosity, is my dad's term. Lord, not only am I intimate with you, but I am reverent of you. And if you are not reverent in your praying, then you don't know who you're praying to. You're not praying to the God of all creation. And Lord, I'm submissive to you. May your will be done in my life. I'm surrendering myself to you. And then we learn today, Lord, give me contentment in my life. All that you've given me already today, it's enough. You've given me this day, this day's bread. Oh, thank you, Lord. I don't need to ask for much more. And Lord, deal with my sin. Past and future, deal with my sin. Oh, that we would be confessional in our praying. And our praying takes on the character of this model that Christ gives his disciples. We can truly then see his power infuse it. For when we pray according to this skeleton, this structure, and we put the meat of the circumstances of our life around it and of, of those that we love and those that we should love, and we put that around it and we and we start a- building this this prayer life, but we build it around this structure, then we will have met every qualification for effectual praying. Every condition that I find in Scripture for prayers to be answered are wrapped up right here in this model prayer. If we will seek to meet this as our foundation, not as the extent of our praying, if this is all you're praying, you're just rehearsing these same words over and over again, repetitively, this is not what Christ intended. And it's demonstrated throughout the, the rest of the New Testament. People didn't pray this prayer over and over again. They prayed because Peter was in jail. Lord, he needs to get out. But this was the structure that the flesh of that praying was hung on. We meet this structure in our life, in our heart. We have then met all the conditions of powerful praying. Why is our prayer weak? Because we don't pray like this. This isn't the structure. We have no skeleton to our praying. We're like a giant glob on the floor with no structure. You do realize that to go anywhere without your skeleton would be really hard? You know how difficult it would be? Impossible. This is the skeleton of praying. And it is absolutely necessary if your prayers are going to go anywhere. Beyond the hearing of this room. Well, we're going to exemplify this in the next week and see how good God is. <laughs> and how responsive He is. And really He is. I'm not giving God excuses today for not answering your prayer. I'm taking away your excuses for blaming God for not answering your prayer. He's told us how to pray. It's now for us. To do it. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Lord God, I thank you for this instruction. And I confess that it is not adequately lived out in my life. Nor in our church Lord truly give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness and we can't have that as long as we're clinging to sin and hiding thinking we're hiding it from you Oh Lord purge us purge our hearts purge our lives purge our minds convict convict again that we might have sin out of us Cleanse from us. We might stand before you righteous and then have an expectation of walking in righteousness all our days. Lord, may our praying follow this structure. May these truths that you taught your disciples and taught us today Be a reality in our lives. Be a reality in this church. In your church. Lord, we thank you that we do not need to do this in our own strength. But that you have provided a means. For us to have a vital, active, effective prayer life. Lord, you're so good to us. You've provided so abundantly beyond anything we could ask or think, really. And you desire to be even better to us who has simply come to you on your terms. Lord, help us to do that today and this week. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.